Hey, this is Steve Bowes. Before we get to the show, which is a super special end of summer show where Trish McFarlane and I take a deep dive into the movie Free Solo in the return of our Workplace Movie Hall of Fame series, I do want to shout out our sponsors for today's show. First off, Culture Amp. Culture Amp is the platform that turns your company culture into your competitive advantage. Your employee data tells you what's happened in the past, but what if it could tell you what might happen next? Using data from over 3 million employees, Culture Amp's machine learning algorithms make it easy to predict turnover, telling you not just who might leave, but also why. See how you can get ahead of turnover with your free predictive analytics report, now available at cultureamp.com slash happy. And I'd like to shout out our newest sponsor, OC Tanner. OC Tanner is the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. They help thousands of top companies create peak moments that inspire people to achieve, appreciate, and connect to purpose and each other. From Boston to Bengaluru, clients use OC Tanner's Culture Cloud to retain, engage, and attract talent, bond teams, drive innovation, and communicate company values. With apps for recognition, service awards, well-being, leadership, and celebrations, Culture Cloud gives you a single modular suite of integrated tools for crafting a world-class workplace culture because when your apps work together, your people do too. Check them out at octanner.com. All right, here comes Workplace Movie Hall of Fame, free solo. Hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the HR Happy Hour Show with hosts Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland. Since 2009, the HR Happy Hour Show has been bringing you thought leaders, workplace and technology experts, academics, and more to take on the most important and interesting topics impacting work, human resources, technology, and the workplace. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net. Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. My name is Steve Bowes. I am joined by, of course, Trish McFarland. Trish, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Steve? I am fantastic. This is a show I've been waiting for for some time, and I believe our listeners have as well. It is, Trish, the return of Workplace Movie Hall of Fame. I know. We get so many requests for this. It's amazing. I can't believe it. This has been my favorite show. We've done a couple of these. Uh, you can look back in the archives. We did Flashdance. Uh, we did Mr. Mom, which were two great uh, movies right. and two great conversations. Trish, since you really were the, uh, the kind of the, the inspiration and the impetus uh, behind this episode of Workplace Movie Hall of Fame, why don't you uh, share with our listeners the movie we are going to be talking about? And then I'll share a couple of statistics about that movie before we dive into the conversation. Sounds good. Well. As people may know, we tend to travel quite a bit, so I am always on an airplane, and occasionally, when I'm not working, I do try and watch a movie. So on one trip, don't even remember which one, um, there was I had kind of like gotten down to where I'd watched all the ones I thought I wanted to watch. Do you ever have that happen where you're kind of like, you know, oh, yeah. there's nothing left to do on the plane? So long story short, it was free solo, and... I don't know why or what I thought this movie was going to be. I knew it was about rock climbing. I think in the back of my head, I might have thought it was about the guy that got his arm stuck in in the rock and had to cut his arm off. So maybe that's why I was a little like, oh, I don't really want to watch this. So I decided to watch the trailer and I was just 
in awe of this person who was, you know, going to to do this um, climb. So um, why don't you give some information about the movie? Um, I will just say the other thing is this is an Oscar winning movie. So ties back to our Oscar show. And I think at the time of the Oscars, uh, I don't think either one of us had watched it. Right. That, For that is correct. I had not. Right. I had watched several other documentaries. And again, maybe I just had some weird preconceived notion of what this was. But yeah, please let everyone know kind of some statistics behind uh, Free Solo. All right. For some context for folks who haven't seen this movie yet, Free Solo is a 2018 American documentary film directed by Elizabeth Chai Vazarhelyi and Jimmy Chin that profiles the rock climber Alex Honnold on his quest to perform a free solo climb of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park in June of 2017. The film premiered at the Telluride Film Festival on August 31st, 2018, and also screened at the 2018 Toronto International Film Festival, where it won the People's Choice Award in the documentaries category. The film was released in the United States in September 2018, where it received positive reviews from critics and grossed over $21 million. And as Trish mentioned, the film has received numerous accolades, including winning Best Documentary Feature at the 91st Academy Awards. So this movie is about this incredible climber's quest to become the first person to free solo climb El Capitan. And if you're not familiar with El Capitan, it's, it's basically a 3,000-foot pretty sheer rock of a, a granite wall, essentially that goes straight up. And um, I had to look this up, Trish, and it's maybe worth mentioning. Lots of people have climbed El Capitan, right. Using ropes and, and right. nailing in pylons to the, to the granite and doing that kind of thing. And a few people had done what's called a, a free climb of El Capitan. And there's a difference mm-hmm. between a free climb and a free solo climb, Trish, which I did not know until I looked this up on a free climb you still have those ropes attached to you just in case you fall, but you don't, you don't use the ropes, right? You just climb on your own strength and your own hands and feet. But the, in case you do lose connection with the mountain, the rope will save you. A free solo climb like Connell attempts in this movie, there are no ropes, there's nothing. If you lose grip, you lose connection to the mountain, essentially, depending on how high you are at that point, you fall and almost certainly die. So that's, there's a distinction here, and it's important to mention as well. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, I think when, when we think about also this, this feat that he is trying to achieve, right. Have you, first of all, have you been to Yosemite? Have you seen this rock El Capitan? No, I never have. I haven't either. And again, I don't know why it's probably no real reason, right. You just haven't, haven't made it there, but I think seeing this movie and, and seeing the, the size and scope of this, like when, when the movie opens, um, you know, he is is this tiny little speck and he's wearing a, a bright red T-shirt, you know, as he's climbing and and they kind of pan out and you see the the sheer size and scale of what he's trying to achieve. It's it's absolutely terrifying. I'm like terrified to watch it, honestly. And uh, yeah. so it, it just really gets you from the very first second um, that he's doing this. But it's it's like it also because it's. Um, you know, in partnership, I believe, with National Geographic. So there's also obviously, you know, some really amazing scenery. And if nothing else, I think it made me uh, more interested in going to Yosemite and actually seeing this for myself. You know, it's uh, yeah. it was just phenomenal to um, 
to start watching it. Yeah, we probably should also beautiful. say, Steve, that we will not uh, give away whether or not he achieves it, right? We can't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. No, no, no. We don't need to <laughs> no spoil spoilers. it. But just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the, um, but but it can, essentially the basic plot of the documentary is we, we okay. at the beginning, we're introduced to this climber, Alex Honnold. We learn more about him, uh, what's driving him to try to achieve this um, really incredibly complex and difficult feat of climbing that no one up until that point had ever done before. Uh, we get to learn a little bit about his motivation, a little bit of his backstory, some of the things that uh, in his upbringing and his development that kind of led him to this point. And also we learn a little bit about kind of um, the business of professional rock climbing, which I, I didn't even know was a thing, Trish, I have to be honest oh. with you. I didn't, I didn't know that you could actually make a living uh, climbing rocks like this and in, in, in climbing mountains as, as he does. But we, we can talk about that as well. Because I think one of the interesting dynamics in, in the film is that we're getting a peek behind the curtains of the making of this very film, if that makes sense. The documentary, mm -hmm. right. when you watch Free Solo, the documentary, you learn about a, a, quite a bit about the process of making this actual documentary. The director is in the film, as well as many of the the, cat, the crew who are, who are, who are filming Honnold uh, climbing El Capitan as well. So we get to right. know a little bit about them. Trish, maybe we'll start with this. Like, you you, you watched this movie before me, and, and and you said to me immediately we should do a show about this movie. What 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 sort of stuck out to you about this movie, about Free Solo, and and the story that said to, that you wanted to think about it and talk about it a little bit more? Well, a couple things. I think that you know we get recommendations, or even movies that you and I talk about. We've talked about a lot of sports movies, and I think this qualifies right as some sort of a. It's it's a, it is yeah. A very uh, high level, I, I would call it like an Olympic level sport, really, because the fact that someone is a, attempting to do something that no one else has done or can do, right? You see those sorts of those sorts of um, feats when you're talking about maybe Olympians who are, you know, trying new jumps or new this or new that. But um, for me, it really what stood out the most from the very say first couple minutes um, is. is what you mentioned first, the the business of climbing, which I hadn't really ever given any thought to. And secondly, the fact that you're going into, once I realized what the movie was about, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a, about this individual's journey to something great, hopefully. And immediately it struck me that there was a whole team behind him. And I don't mean just the, the film crew. They, they certainly were very much a part of his his journey and they weren't just filming him. They were fully invested in what he was doing, but sort of all of the other climbers, the other people in his life, friends, family who gave input to this. So while it's a, a solo climb um, and he started it, actually he started solo climbing because he was so shy. He didn't want to ask other people to climb with him. And it really just struck me that, there are many times I think that um, as leaders, uh, as people in an organization, you know, we, we might be part of a team, but you, sometimes you feel like you're out there on the limb alone, right? Doing mm -hmm. something. Like right. And uh, I feel this every day, right? And, but really when you think about it, there, there is a team behind you. And so to me, that was probably the biggest reason because you're my team, right? You and I are a team. And so even though exactly. we don't even though we don't work on every project together, 
Um, and sometimes we go long periods of time without doing, you know, a project together. But it's that idea that, like him, they might not have been making that climb with him in a physical sense, but they were absolutely critical in his preparation, his education, his support, um, cheering him on, like all the things that you would need. Um, so that's what really struck me and why immediately, I think before I had finished watching it, I was on the plane and I'm like messaging you um, saying we have to talk about this, this movie, because I don't know that people would get that from the title or even from the uh, trailer. Yeah, that's a really great point, Trish. Uh, as I was watching the movie, uh, just the last time I watched it, I made a couple of notes. And one of the notes I made was about the, the preparation and in particular about the role of another climber in the movie and a friend of Alex Honnold by the name of Tommy Caldwell. Caldwell said two really uh, interesting things, probably my two favorite quotes in the movie, maybe. Uh, the one he said was about just the preparation as a professional climber and, and a friend, certainly, of Honnold. Uh, you know, Caldwell understood how difficult this task was going to be and how dangerous it was as well. And he kind of said to himself, look, I'm not sure I agree with Alex doing this and, uh, you know, just because of how dangerous it is and, and how perilous it could be. But he also said, if I didn't, I knew he was going to do it anyway, either with or without my help. And I wouldn't feel good about myself really for the rest of my life. If I didn't do everything I could to help prepare him to try to accomplish this, this goal of his, right? I can't, I couldn't leave him alone to, you know, if I don't agree that he should be doing it, I have to be there for him to help prepare them to the best of my ability, which really struck me as well. Uh, you know, and really that important, that importance and, and how valuable that can be to have that partner, you know, in the workplace or even on your team, or even it's a mentor, or even just it's a peer or a colleague who, who, you know, is there for you. And even if they don't agree with what you're doing, or maybe they don't totally agree with the choices you're about to make, uh, but they're still going to be there to support you and help prepare you uh, to meet challenges as well. And the other, the other comment he made alludes to uh, something you said about this being like a sports movie. And Caldwell said to me when he was trying to describe what, what accomplishing or, or this type of a climb would be to people who don't really know rock climbing itself and how difficult it is. He said, imagine the greatest gold medal winning performance of any kind in any sport in any competition but also imagine if you make the tiniest mistake or error or slip up, you, you don't just lose the gold medal, you die. That, and that's the right. best way he could describe uh, what, what yeah. Honnold was about to do. And so um, knowing all that, right, the willingness of, of Caldwell and some other folks as well, right, to help uh, to be there as guides and mentors. There's another climber Honnold talks to a couple of times in the movie as well. It's an older guy and his name escapes me right now, but it was a guy, a very, very accomplished climber in his own right. And it was interesting how th that guy was not necessarily pushing Honold into doing this. He he was he was just there to listen and to to encourage, but also to um, just be a sounding board and and to kind of tell Honold, hey, it's okay to be it's okay to be a little scared. It's okay to step back. It's okay to to maybe you know think about this uh, two or maybe three or four times before you attempt it as well. So like with even though Honold comes off in the movie Trish as, as being very much of an eccentric, a little bit of a loner in many, mm -hmm. in many instances. You mentioned how he be, he began to become a free solo type climber or, or, or a lone climber because he was just very, very shy and, and didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, he does have those very important people in his life, uh, certainly from a professional standpoint, that, that make very, very important contributions at important times uh, as, as he progresses on his attempt to, to complete this incredibly tough goal. 
Oh, he does. I, I mean, I think that you've really called out a few that were so important. And one of the things that struck me was when he was even talking about his own childhood. And, you know, of course, they're giving that background. One of the things he says is that he didn't uh, know how to hug because he wasn't really hugged as a child. And so when he was 23, he like set out to teach himself how to hug. And he kind of <laughs> joked, he goes, and I'm, I'm a pretty good hugger right now. You know, I'm pretty good at it now. Mm-hmm. And it, that also, uh, you know, while it had nothing really, uh, in, you know, directly to do with the climbing, it just showed that, you know, sometimes we get stuck in our head or we think like, because we don't know how to do something, we just can never do it. Or if it is scary, we can't do it. The one thing that I, I really am impressed about him as an individual is that if there's something that he feels like he can't do, he figures out how to do it. You know, he trains himself and it doesn't matter if he's 23 or 32 or what, you know, whatever age, um, he seems like he's just a person that will seek those relationships out. So even though he might've been shy to begin with, maybe very few friends, he does now have that community he's built around him. And now my goodness, worldwide community, right? He's now in the limelight and, and, um, very recognized and an author and he speaks to students and, and adults alike. So, um, so that too, I think was, was pretty interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I rewatched it as well, um, which let me tell you, there, there are a few movies I'd watch a second time. I could watch this one like 10 times, seriously, and learn something new every time. It's one of those movies. Um, sure. Something he says really early on, though, I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, he says the, to do something like this, he said, the risk is low, but the consequence is high, which alludes back to your point of like, it, you either succeed or you die, right? Um, Number one, I don't know that I would say doing this is a low risk sort of thing. To me, it seems like an extremely high risk. But but if we take it at face value of, of his his impression, because it was his task, not mine, a lot of times in, in business or in organizations or even in life, I've heard, you know, with great risk comes great reward. Have you heard that? Yes. Right? So to me, this is kind of like the opposite. Right. This is saying with very little risk, you know, the consequence could either be immensely wonderful or you die. Right. Yeah. Trish, What's it's your stance on that. Like it's I, I just think it's so we did not we we talked about we were going to do the podcast about this movie. We both watched it, watched it a right. couple times. We, we did not share any notes prior to the show, nor talk about what we were oh, going no, to no. discuss on the show. The very next bullet point I wrote down, Trish, on my little piece of paper here is <laughs> risk versus consequences. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that You're as well. So. <laughs> well good. so I think you, I think you raise that- a really. I was just gonna say, I think it comes into play in, uh, you know, in our everyday workplaces. So it's, yeah, it's important. So So here's what I thought, what I, what I thought about the risk versus consequences story, because that was a pretty compelling part of the, of the story as well, when, when, when Honold is talking about this, because from the outside looking in, right, as you said, this looks like incredibly risky. This is, in fact, so risky, it's almost insane, right? And, And it's been estimated that like a tenth of 1% of all the people who who rock climb or mountain climb, like one tenth of 1% of people free solo in this manner, like, like Honold is attempting. And certainly no one does it on El Capitan before he, he attempted it. But the way he assessed it was, and if you notice throughout the movie, there's a there's an arc in the movie, um, certainly of, of the preparation for the attempt at the solo climb of El Capitan, both the mental preparation and the physical preparation. The physical preparation involves 
many, many ascents of El Capitan supported by the ropes, right? With the ropes nailed in and, mm-hmm. and safety harnesses on, et cetera, et cetera. And Honnold spends, it, it, they don't really say exactly how many times in the movie he does this, but I think you could surmise just from what they showed in the movie. And also Honnold's been at this for over a decade. Right? He didn't just start, mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't start out rock climbing by making this attempt that's documented in the movie. My guess he's probably climbed that route or, or, or attempted climbing on that route supported by harnesses hundreds of times. And what he had developed over this, all these practices and all these practice attempts was detailed notes about each section of the climb. The, each section of the climb has a little name to it, right? They name portions of mm-hmm. the climb in order to just basically document the route and to sort of understand what you're going to be facing at different parts of this climb, which, by the way, for an experienced climber like Honnold would take about four hours to complete from, from bottom to top. And he had such detailed notes and there are parts of the, of the film where he's reading out loud from his notebook and he's literally saying things like, uh, you know, right foothold here, reach with your left thumb there, you know, rope your fingers over your thumb there, switch your hand here, grab this thing here, trust your right foot there, right? Almost to the actual movement of these, of these difficult passages in, in the climb, he's documented them basically movement by movement, hands, feet, elbows, knees, et cetera, et cetera. And also made notes to himself about, you know, trust your foot here, trust it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a long-winded way of saying by that intense preparation and that concentration and the practice and the repetition and and, then that focus, he felt like he was lowering the risk, right? There there was no way he could lower the consequences, right? Falling off that that, that rock, the consequence was, was clear, there was nothing he could do to remove that. So the only way to manage that situation, you know, effectively, or at least hopefully successfully for him was to mitigate the risk. Now we can look, you know, from the outside end and say, there's no way there's, that's incredibly risky anyway, but to him, right. A professional experienced rock climber who had done that route a hundred times, he felt like the risk was acceptably low that, it was worth taking, right? And even though the consequences were so high. So to me, it was much more a story about preparation, focus, concentration, and understanding that something like this, or really any other incredibly complex goal or a goal you may set for yourself in business or for your organization, you can't just set a big audacious goal and then expect to get there without putting in the time and the effort and in, in, in and developing almost like the muscle memory so that by the time you're really, really, well, maybe it's a public speech, Trish, or maybe it's mm-hmm. a big presentation you're going to make. Maybe it's a pitch to a client. Maybe it's, uh, you're going to test a new, you know, program that you wrote. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, the, the effort you have to put in to reduce that risk of failure, chance of failure. And he did it there. So to me, that was, that was the risk versus consequences thing I was, I was thinking about. And I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the movie. I agree. I think too, I had written down around the preparation and the planning and the mapping and all of the hours and hours. Um, the only thing I would add there is too, like when you think about it, because we're, you know, sort of thinking about these in terms of the workplace um, and how that would equate, you know, I think there are lots of times when you could probably, you know, uh, open a newspaper or pull up the internet today on any of the news sites. And I'm sure you could find some sort of business story about some business person, business leader, CEO, who has done something really miraculous um, and wonderful and successful. And that story or what you happen to hear about it, even if you're an employee, you may not ever know the hours of practice and preparation that have led up to that particular executive in that moment. Um, sure. So maybe my the first thing that struck me is 
um, as organizations, we could certainly do a better job of communicating um, why certain decisions get made. Because I, I just, you know, speaking for myself, I think there are definitely times where I've worked at companies where I think like, why is the company doing that? You know, mm-hmm. and you only have what what you know, right? So part of it is around um, getting that behind the scenes look at all of his preparation. Because again, as an outside person, if we heard the story that he did or did not climb a certain, you know, um, rock or mountain, we wouldn't have any clue as to how many hours, weeks, months, years went into the preparation of that. I think secondly, um, when you talk about whether it's a presentation you're giving or a pitch to a client or maybe a project you're working on, I think a lot of times, um, and again, I'll raise my hand because I can be guilty of this too, is there are times where we rush ourselves. We still want that great result because maybe we've, you know, maybe we've pitched to clients a hundred times and had success, but maybe this one time we kind of slacked off. We didn't give it our all. We didn't do the mental and physical preparation that's necessary for success. And again, sometimes you might succeed anyway, but sometimes you fail really big. I, I just wonder if, if people were to do some self-examination, you know, when they're thinking about this, um, how often do we all put in that same rigor and that same preparation to what we're trying to give back to our workplace community? Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, if they were honest, might say, you know what, there's probably a lot of times I just kind of phone it in during the day. I don't really do, (laughs) you know, and, and that's okay. Um, But when you really think about companies that are successful, that do make some pretty calculated risks, have executives that seem pretty bold, pretty daring, you know? Uh, Yeah. I would imagine if you were to really kind of dig in, you'd probably find that there was quite a bit of preparation that, you know, the general public or the employee base may not ever see. I don't know. How how would that, like, when you think of places you've worked, you've worked in all kinds of environments from education to um, technology to, you know, just all different kinds of jobs and in different, in the field, mm-hmm. in an office, uh, how does that equate back to what you've experienced? Yeah, I think I think it's it's interesting um, because I look at this through um, what this movie made me do a little bit and, and made me think about in that light is is um, I mentioned the preparation a minute or two ago. Hand in hand with that prep preparation comes at least certainly in the movie and, and I think there's some parallels into the real working world in our own professional lives and personal lives is this element of sacrifice so I'll, I'll just tell another quick story from the movie so it, there's a little bit of backstory in the movie about uh, Alex Honnold the climber has a girlfriend and uh, she's a very nice girl and, and they have a good relationship going it seems like relatively newer relationship and, and certainly she does not want him to fall off a mountain and, and die right and um where she never really tells him, hey, you know, you shouldn't do this. I don't want you to do this. It's clear, at least what they show in the movie, she was not super excited about this attempt to free solo climb this giant uh, rock mountain. Right. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a sort of passage where Honold is, you know, just talking to the, to the camera and he, he basically says, oh, you know, she's a great girl. But she, she just wants to be, she thinks like the goal of life is to be happy and, and comfortable and, and, and cuddly, right? That, and that, that's, that's the goal. That's what you should shoot for. And he didn't quite understand that because to him, really the goal and the purpose, or at least he felt like the purpose up until that point of his life was basically achievement, right? Achieving this, this goal and other goals and, and accomplishing something great, right? He, and he was driven to do this, right? 
And so what, what I'm thinking about is kind of that difference, you know, in our own lives. Now he needed to have that focus and that drive and that that's almost single-minded uh, achievement orientation and the willingness to sacrifice almost everything outside of that in his life in order to achieve that. Just again, because as we talked about the, the consequences of failure were so high, most of us in our jobs, in our workplaces, the consequences are not that, um, that dramatic, right? If, if we fail, but I do think there's an undercurrent here and kind of something to at least think about or, or talk about a little bit is you have to really make a self-assessment in many in many circumstances in organizations, any type of organization really is, what am I willing to do in order to accomplish really, really great things um, and to succeed and help my organization succeed, help myself succeed, right? And there's definitely a tension here between kind of, uh, maybe it's a work-life balance thing, right? I don't know, but uh, maybe that's a side conversation here, but what you are willing to do, what you're willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish great things. And then the question, I guess it, it offers all of us to think about is, are, can us, can any of us really accomplish really great things while thinking too much about being cuddly and, and happy and cozy, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I don't really know what the answer is, right? But um, uh, I, th I thought that would, there was a tension there, not just a tension between the climber and his girlfriend, but just between what we have to think about and what we're willing to do in order to uh, achieve great things and, and what do our organizations um, demand of us, right? In order to achieve great things. I don't know. I don't really, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not sure I'm making a great point here, Trish, but it was something that this, all good movies really make you think. And this movie made me think about that tension quite a bit. Right. I'm, I'm so glad you said it that way because I kind of thought of it the, the same, um, along the same vein, but in a totally opposite approach, which is good because I think that that shows that, you know, obviously we work together, but in, if you were to even look at your, you know, if you're a listener, if you're thinking about your own organization, the person next to you could watch this and come away with the same sort of thoughts about, about what he did, but in a very different way. So for example, where you're talking about the sacrifice, which hearing you say it that way, all the things mm -hmm. he was sacrificing with this girlfriend and more from her point of view, Certainly, I can see how that is. I actually wrote kind of the opposite of that same coin because I said um, that you can achieve these things when you're when you're sort of hyper focused on only what is necessary. Mm -hmm. So, sort of necessary ver versus sacrificial, right? Like, so yeah. for example, I said he's really focused on the climb, on having a minimalist type of of living situation. He's living in a van, for example, during right. a, a good chunk of the movie. He is. Uh, spending very little, I think at one point he says 88 cents a day on food. He, you know, and, and he, he doesn't even have a plate. He's eating like out of a pot with a big old spoon. Like, so again, from his perspective, he thinks that's completely normal. Um, he doesn't, I think if you were to probably ask him, he wouldn't have said he was sacrificing anything. He was just yeah. hyper-focused and he was taking steps to only do, um, what was absolutely necessary in his mind to achieve his goal and not do anything in addition that would, would take away the focus. And so I wonder, same thing too, like if, if, you know, if you are in your work environment and maybe you are working on a, a project and, you know, and you're a leader in one department and you're working with leaders in another department, they might bring that sort of opposite view. And it's, it does become kind of challenging navigating someone who's saying, what are we going to sacrifice if we do this versus yeah. If someone's saying, well, I'm only doing what's necessary and you might have those yeah. disagreements. So again, I don't have any solution there. I'm just kind of saying like, I think that 
to your point, this is one of those movies that makes you think about not only his approach, but your own approach and, uh, and maybe how you could either change or tweak or work better with others. I think that was my takeaway overall was that, you know, doing things that are very individual are fine. But when you really think about all the people there that are trying to support you with very different views to help you make the best decisions, um, even yeah. and to your earlier point, even when your mentors might think you're crazy and wouldn't do it themselves. But that's also how how innovations happen. You know, when we think about human resources or HR technology, um, anything to do with the people sides of our organization, a lot of innovation that comes in the way we treat people and the way we um, provide tools for them um, comes from people who are doing that, being very focused and very deliberate and practiced and kind of pushing the envelope where maybe everyone else in their company is thinking they're crazy. But that's sort of the those big rewards that come, right? When you do that. Yeah, so. I think that's a great point, Trish. What I was what I was thinking about as, as you were you were you were making your point is is this kind of reminds us, at least to me anyway, this story reminds us that like things that are really incredibly difficult, incredibly challenging, um, incredibly uh, valuable, maybe over time, almost any of those things, they can't be accomplished at least without some level of discomfort, right? And whether that's creative tension in the organization, whether it's really like ideas battering back and forth to each other, whether it's, whether it is sacrifice, whether it is extra hours, whether it is, um, uh, maybe giving up some things in order to pursue other things. Maybe it's not, you know, like he was uh, in the movie. He, I mean, he has the girlfriend in the movie, but he more or less eschews most deep personal relationships in order to pursue this goal. And again, it, this is an extreme example, right? He had to have that kind of focus in order to attempt to achieve this incredibly difficult obstacle. But I do think it's, it's important to remind us of that at, at different points in your career. Anyway, it's certainly that. And I know I've had this, I'm sure you've had it too, Trish, like, like certain certain projects I've worked on over the years, or systems implementations, or uh, just big major um, pro- process reengineering things back in the day, or no matter what it was, right? Having those, there were oh, there were those stretches where we were working twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours a day, working weekends. I mean, you know, the project I talk about, I've been talking about for twenty years. My first big systems implementation project. I remember like we worked something like 49 consecutive days at one point, like not a single day off because we were under the gun to get this thing done by a certain time. And and we really didn't have an option to fail. And it was kind of awful at times during, during, during those, those uh, periods. Right. And, And you missed out on things and you couldn't be there for things. And maybe you pissed off people in your personal life, right? If you've had to go through some of those things where you just weren't available or you missed things or you, you weren't kind of keeping up uh, the things you needed to do outside of work. But often, right. We look back on those things. At least I do and say to myself, man, that was great. Like you, you look back at them, you look back at them, generally speaking, much more fondly and with much more appreciation for what they did for your own development and your sense of accomplishment, I think, over time. And it's, it's, it's easy to say now, right? I'm looking back on some of these things 10, 20 years later, but uh, I think it's, it's important to know that, like, to me, that not only, the lesson is not just, you may have to make incredible sacrifices and be incredibly devoted and be incredibly focused in order to accomplish great things, but also that, hey, these are going to be the things you're going to look back on someday as, as like the highlights of your career, right? And, and maybe your career, your professional career might be 30, 40, 50 years, right? 
And you're going to want a few of those highlights. You're going to want a few of these El Capitan moments in your career, right? Whatever they are. Right. And uh, you look back on them and, and be glad that you did. At least I think you will. I think that's a perfect point. One of the things I was going to ask you um, that I took away from the movie, again, not giving away whether, whether or not he's successful, because I, <laughs> I do want people to watch. Normally I would say, oh, we'll just give the spoiler. You can turn it off now, right? But I really don't want to tell people whether he's successful or not. And, you know, like you said, he, he tries to go up and down this thing several times. So um, there's lots of, uh, you know, points where you're just not even sure what's going to happen. But um, one thing that struck me throughout the movie was, you know, I think at one point he even says, you know, um, that he's enjoying the climb. Yeah. The, the process of it and all, you know, whatever. And so I think that relates to what you're talking about. You know, even when things are tough, even when they're challenging, even when it's a lot of hours or a lot of days or whatever, um, what good is coming of it? Not just that you finished a project, you know, that's of course good for the company, but I mean like for you personally, for your career, but are you enjoying the climb? Are you enjoying the camaraderie maybe? Mm -hmm. you know? um, does it bring you closer with your coworkers? Does it make you feel more connected to the mission of the organization you're with? You know, I think of lots of times where, I've worked on some pretty challenging assignments and with pretty challenging people and you get to the end of that project and you think, wow, that was actually really good. Yeah. You know, I really made a difference on there. And I think that's maybe what I won't say everyone is motivated by, but I think a lot of people are really um, highly motivated by just knowing that they matter. You know, when you really strip away money, title, whether you're making widgets or, you know, mm -hmm. curing yeah. cancer, right. It's, do I matter? Is, is my time that I'm spending during my day to be away from my family, my friends, whatever, does it matter? Um, yeah. And I thought that was pretty interesting that he reflects on that kind of in the way he lives. And I will say too, I wanted to ask your opinion on this because at one point they sort of do a brain scan of him where, oh, right. where they find out that, you know, again, I'm not a medical person, but there, you know, there's a certain part of your brain that basically lights up when you have stimulation, right? When you're, whether it's, you know, the adrenaline and you're doing something kind of risky and his was virtually like not lighting up, right? right. It took a whole lot more stimulation to get him to eat, whether it's to feel fear or to, you know, whatever, or to be elated about something maybe. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I wonder too, so as I'm, I'm knowing that about him personally, but at the times when you sort of see him just break into a smile and really be proud of himself. It's really cool. And I wonder like, I don't know, do we do that enough? I, I don't know that I sit there and like, I think when I finish things, I'm a type of person I I'm already thinking about, or maybe I've already moved on to the next two or three projects. Yeah. Or maybe I'm doing them simultaneously. So I do feel like there's this element of we're always worried about what's next and we don't really enjoy or appreciate these moments. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. I think there's two things I thought about when you uh, about that passage in the movie where he's getting that brain scan to just kind of assess his his brain activity, right? W with respect more specifically to stimulus, outside stimulus. And as you said, it, it, it turns out that it took quite a bit to get him sort of his brain stimulated, right? N normal things that would scare or excite or en en enthuse a normal person uh, weren't doing anything for him. So the logical conclusion was he needed you know, greater enhanced kind of experiences in order to feel that, that thrill or that energy rush or the adrenaline rush or whatever the case may be. To me, I thought about it more as, um, do we spend enough time 
in careers, especially earlier in our careers, if we have the, and sometimes we don't have the ability to do this due to other reasons, more, more practical reasons, but do we spend enough time really trying to understand ourselves, what motivates us, what excites us, what enthuses us? And I don't mean specific tasks or specific types of jobs even necessarily, like, oh, I really love marketing, et cetera. I just mean more like the kind of work we want to do, the kind of environment we want to be in. Does that really suit us, um, whether how our brains work or how we feel emotionally, how we might feel socially? Um, like for him, he was naturally a shy, introverted guy, a little bit odd, maybe even a bit, you know, just probably difficult to even get to know. He seems like the kind of guy that was not going you know, to naturally be very close to many people. So being a solo rock climber was actually the perfect occupation for him, as it turns out. And he was very lucky. He even says that when he's addressing the, the meeting, the assembly of students early in the movie, he talks about how lucky he is. And how fortunate he feels like he kind of found the thing that suits him the best and makes him happy and he can make a living out of it. I wonder if um, maybe, especially with early career folks that we bring into the organization, that we spend enough time. Uh, helping them as well, try to find that that thing or that set of things or or, or the right environment um, where they can that not only they can be happy, but they go, they can also thrive and and can achieve, right? Because ideally, right? We talk. I talked a little bit about the balance between happy, cuddly life and and high achievement life. I think really, right? The balance most of us are searching for is something in the middle, right? We're happy and we're also achieving, right? And um, I think the only way you can really do that is if you've maybe either determined for yourself or found yourself in the right set of circumstances, you know, a combination of job, culture, um, expectations, challenges, et cetera, et cetera, that, that suit you more deeply, more personally. I don't know. That's kind of what I thought about during that part of the movie. Do you think though, that it's, it's fair to say that if you looked at, you know, an organization of 10,000 people, that there has to be some percentage, maybe even half that are, are not doing what you're describing or maybe more than half, you know, that are, are not in that, that perfect role that gets them, you know, are not even the perfect role in the perfect profession, yeah. right? Because we all have to pay our dues. So you might not be right in your, your dream job just yet. But, I, you know, I, I, I'd kind of put you and I into that category, right? We've both done different things. We've both been in this industry in, in some way, shape or form for our entire careers, but it wasn't until, you know, probably in our 40s where we could probably both really say like again we, we could probably point to specific times in our career we've really felt successful or enjoyed it but I don't know do you think that if you were to look at your own career you would say like it wasn't until you got a little bit older where you yeah. kind of those opportunities yep. happen for yourself because I feel like he's lucky that he got it young I don't know that's I could be completely wrong you could sway me the other way <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you're right. He is lucky, and I do think for for many of us, uh, we don't figure it out so much later, or after we've had a chance to actually try a number of different things, and maybe work in different roles, and work in different co companies, or work in different um, functional capacities. Right? It, it does take some time to know. Certainly, for the most of us, I'll, for me, for sure, I'll speak for myself. You know, when I in the first eight or nine, maybe ten years of my career, I just kind of was just following a path, right? That was just the path that seemed to be the, the normal path that you take, right? Um, when you when you do the the kind of things I did and kind of stumbled into things I liked to do a little bit later. And then finally, over time, ev evolving and learning and, and, and getting lucky a little bit too from time to time, 
getting to a place where you feel like you're doing something that aligns uh, better with uh, who you are and what you want to do and who, you, who the kind of person you are. If you have the, the opportunity to think a little bit more deeply about it or to help people in the organization, really find, um, find out if they're in the right place, in the right role, or, or doing the things that, that have them present them the opportunity to really be fulfilled, then, uh, then yeah, that's what you'd be, you'd be striving for. And, and I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not sure how to do it. Right. There's a, I mean, there's a billion dollar industry, right. Trish of, of you know, go from like the disc assessment into the, uh, oh, what's the other one, the Myers-Briggs. Right. And there's probably a dozen other ones that attempt to try to do this. But um, the fact that it seems to me that so few of us actually really consciously think about this and work towards it or have the, the opportunity to work towards it kind of means to me that, uh, there's still there's still opportunity there. So I don't know. It's it's uh, for the yeah. leaders who are listening to the to the podcast. It's like when you think about your own team, maybe their maturity level and expert expertise and time practicing aren't where yours are, um, and so you use that to help them identify earlier. You know, yeah. if you're truly trying to help people achieve the most, whether it's for your organization or even even if it's not, I've told so many people, like young people that have worked for me at various companies, I'm sure my bosses wouldn't have liked it, but you know, they'd they'd be all worked up about this or that. And I'd say, you know, these would be 24, 25, 26, 27 year old people. And they'd be all worked up and I'd say, okay, let's just be honest. Are are we both retiring from here? Yeah, probably not. Maybe, hopefully, right. That's always the answer. Hopefully we are, but, but let's realistically, we're probably not. So in the meantime, what do we do to, you know, amplify the skills that you have and build the ones that you don't and get you into something, you know, that challenges you work, you know, that excites you or whatever. So again, I think that's pretty risky for a leader to do, but that might be a takeaway from the movie too. It's like, if you do that, we would actually then be developing these people at a younger age, even if you shave off, you know, five years of someone, you know, being able to find that out earlier about themselves, what really inspires them. Wow. I wonder if you were to do a study of people, I'm sure people have too, but like if you were to study a group of people in an organization, like where you actually were able to do that at a younger age, would their performance from a, you know, a revenue perspective, a productivity perspective or whatever, a happiness perspective, engagement perspective, like would their results be truly better than a group where you just hired them in, you onboarded them and you stuck them in a job. And that was kind of the end of that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think the other thing that happens too all the time, especially in organizations that are that are kind of um, just high output, high volume, high churn kinds of things is, is we kind of want to encourage people to stick at things that we've discovered that they're good at and not necessarily they may not necessarily be the things that these people really want to do or really will make them be fulfilled. I think we sort of, mistakenly often equate competence or skill with um with like uh, deeper meaning and deeper engagement right being good at something doesn't mean you really want to do it if that makes sense uh, it can it can it helps maybe but um it, it doesn't mean that it's the right thing for you to do either and i think it's easy for us to say oh you're really good at this keep doing that right and uh, without really deep probing a little bit more deeply about what our, what we want to do ourselves or in a case as you mentioned just for a leader working with their teams and mentoring folks in the organization. I think that's another thing that's to think about here. I'll tell you what, I think that that's the difference between a leader and a manager because I think a leader 
would not do that to their people. I think a yeah. manager, absolutely, who isn't even sort of leading their own career, um, and nothing. There's nothing wrong with managers, right? With it's it's needed and it works sometimes, right? But they're the people who absolutely want to keep their team the way it is because it's easier. They want to keep the people they know with the skills they know, doing what they know, and um, and. If, you, if that is your organizational culture or if that is the type of people that you put toward the top, then you should expect a certain type of results over time. But yeah. I think you do hire, but it's also, I would, I would argue this and you could absolutely fight me on this. It would be interesting. <laughs> is it harder to have true leaders in your organization? Because you're not going to always agree with, with what they think. You're, they are going to make you uncomfortable quite often. They are going to you know, disagree or challenge you or push your organization into something it has not been doing. I think that's what this guy is. You know, he's a leader. He's a leader, not only of himself. That's why, even though he doesn't set out to be a leader in the true sense of the word, like he is because other people become inspired when they see the way he approaches his own destiny. Like, you know, so I think that's it too. I, for me, the most rewarding things, I can't tell you all the years where I actually was just a manager, where I was in that same capacity because I wasn't yet fully doing it for myself. But it's like once I made the flip, I've told so many people who I thought were phenomenal and had great potential to please go work in a different department, to please go do something else. And like I'd challenge and push them and whatever. I actually had one person um, who worked for me called me just within the last couple of months here this summer and is, is finally like been promoted and promoted and promoted and doing what I envision he would be great at doing. He's finally doing, but it took him longer to like admit to himself, like, yeah, that's really what I'm going to be good at. It was like so far away from when we met and Mm -hmm. I felt so good because he came back to me and said, Oh my God, it worked. You know, (laughs) to me, that's the difference between a leader and manager. It doesn't matter. I'm not his boss. It's not about being a boss. I think people are so focused on being a boss. If you're leading someone, you should be able to lead anybody. You can inspire them and coach them and counsel them. They don't have to work for you. They don't have to have a paycheck from the same place as you. So this so. is what this is why workplace movie hall of fame is so much fun to do, right? Because we're talking about a movie about uh, a rock climber attempting this incredibly complex, difficult, and dangerous solo ascent of El Capitan, 3,000 feet, sheer granite wall, straight up. And we end up talking about really some key fundamentals about leadership, mentorship, management, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of some, and really what you're talking about, Trish, is, is how do I really make a difference in the lives of people in the organization, right? That's really the gist of, of, of the last 10 minutes of what we've been talking about. And I think that's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great way to kind of to extend what we learn or what we can think about when we watch a movie like this and, and, and think about how it matters to us or can help us in navigating the things we have to do every day and, and, and the impact ultimately, right, that we can have on people in the organization. Steve, I agree. And I feel like you need to go out and book Alex to come on our show. <laughs> All right. I will try to track him down. He may be a tough gat now that he's a documentary movie star. Oh, Trish, that's a giveaway. You said we weren't going to do a spoiler alert. Uh, about whether or not he succeeds in the climb, and I don't know. I didn't. Okay. Pretend I, you. Pretend, how am I going to book him if he didn't succeed in the climb? That'd be a tough book. No, it wouldn't, because all these. <laughs> did you just give it away? Oh my god. Oh no. 
I think people could maybe figure out what was going on. This movie is great, though. So just real quick, we should pro- we're almost going as long as the actual movie. So I, maybe okay. people want to stop listening to us and go watch the movie. Okay. I know right now this Trish Free Solo is streaming on Hulu. So if you're a Hulu subscriber, you can just watch it. I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime, and it's probably in other places as well. But I, uh, Hulu for sure, if you're a Hulu person, it, it's on there right now. Yes, it is worth a watch once, twice, ten times probably. You'll pick up different things. Um, and you know what? I would be interested if anybody does watch it and, and you pick up different things, please let us know. I'd love to hear some of the other kind of lessons that even if it's just a sentence or a bullet point or two of what, what you really took away from it, you know, email us, tweet us, let us know what you thought about it. And, um, or if we're way off base, maybe it's not inspiring at all. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe our deep dive into this documentary was way too deep. Maybe not. I don't know. I love the movie though. And I took a lot away from it. So I'm great recommendation, Trish. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next workplace movie hall of fame show. I can, we can think about the next movie though. We haven't really picked one, but we should. Um, Well, again, to the listeners, please make some suggestions and Steve, I'm going to put you to the challenge. Again, I think too, part of it is you have to sort of be you have to watch something and all of a sudden be like, Oh my gosh, I totally like the first thing I thought of was I got to talk to Steve about this movie. I, so. I want I, Trish, I'm going to nominate a few good men. My favorite movie of all time, perhaps, no, but you know. no, I can't, I can't do it. I'm, I'm a little Cruise. biased. I can't. We can America's finest actor. No, he's not. We cannot do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We will, we can't go down that rabbit hole. We'll save that for the next show. So this has been super fun, Trish. Uh, check Let's out free solo. Check out Free Solo and uh, let us know what you think. We'll do another one of these soon. So I think we'll wrap it here, Trish. For Trish McFarlane, for our friends who made the movie Free Solo, my name is Steve Bowes. Thank you so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. We will see you next time. And bye for now. Big thanks again to our sponsors today. First, Culture Amp. Discover how you can use predictive analytics to forecast employee turnover with your free guide now available at cultureamp.com slash happy. That's cultureamp.com slash happy. And also OC Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures, helping thousands of top companies create peak moments that inspire people to achieve, appreciate, connect to purpose, and each other. Clients use OC Tanner's Culture Cloud suite of apps and solutions to retain, engage, and attract talent, bond teams, drive innovation, and communicate company values. Check them out at octanner.com. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show, your source for information and conversation on work, the workplace, technology, and more. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net.